she's the Ann Carson to my Carson Daily. It's Brandy Choi. And they're the Love and Hip Hop reunion episode of Contemporary American Poetry, Denise Smith. <laughs> You're listening to Verses, where poets confront the ideas that move them. I do feel like the Jocelyn Hernandez of poetry. I've honestly never seen Love and Hip Hop, so I don't even really know. Really? Yeah. Excellent trash television. Really? Excellent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, you th- mm-hmm. do you feel that it's accurate or should I do a different show? I would do the season of Love and Hip Hop New York with Cardi B on it. Like those two seasons are the best. And like the one with Cardi B and Remy Ma, I think is elite. The Atlanta franchise is a hot mess. And the LA franchise, I don't think is worth it. Those are my opinions about Love and Hip Hop. Take it as you will. Wait, but so should I do, should I stick with that or should I do a different? I think you should read a book for any. That's what I think you should. <laughs> I think you should read. No, a no, book. no. I mean for the there, though. For the there, though. Should I do? Should I? Oh, I thought you were talking about for what Love and Hip Hop to watch. <laughs> <laughs> really intense deep dive. I was like taking notes, but no, I was just asking for feedback on my joke. <laughs> no, the joke was great. <laughs> uh, speaking of reading a book, though, you've been reading anything good lately? You know, I got two days into the Sealy Challenge before I had to give it up to start packing boxes so I could move. I mean, it is a uh, It is a challenge, you know. I'm going to get back into it now that I'm on the other side of my move. But I read, for my first two days, I read um, Harmony Holiday's Hollywood Forever and Krista Franklin's Too Much Midnight. My thought for the month was to try to read as much visual poetics as possible. Or in Krista's case, more like a book in which there are both a strong visual representation of work and then a strong written presentation of work side by side. Um, And I've also been like really into the Poma days um, this year with the guest editors. And like, yeah, um, I think Kazem Ali is doing um, the month that we're currently in, recording in August, and the poems have really been snapping off. And so I've been getting a lot of pleasure from reading those. How about you? Yeah, the Poma days have been fire. Um, I've been reading a lot of like apocalyptic novels, like sort of end of the world novels. And um, I just recently finished Louise Erdrich's Future Home of the Living God, which was very weird and good. And now I'm reading... Um, this book by Ruman Alam called Leave the World Behind. I mean, I feel like this is the thing about all these particular novels that I've been reading is that they're the kind of like dystopian novel where there's kind of just like a lingering foreboding sense in the air. You know what I mean? And it's not like shit happens and like now it's like a zombie movie and we have to get to like safety or something. It's just like stuff is just like bad, you know? <laughs> and so I think that it, it it makes for like very interesting like plot structures. Um, you know, you've been reading these poets who I think like are known for taking really innovative approaches to their writing practices. You know, I think that sometimes when I read um, works that are kind of like experimental or innovative or um, um, doing something outside of like, you know, our kind of conventional structures and approaches. Like there's so many other things to hold on to if you like don't necessarily understand if, it, if it's not just like here's a story and here's the climax and here's the end of it. So like what else to you when you're reading works like that? like makes it satisfying to you as a reader. Ooh, yeah. Can I get some mm-hmm. satisfaction? <laughs> um, I find myself when I feel locked out of content or maybe just not, or maybe when the poet is like not as interested in content either, um, really being in love with like trying to detach 
language from understanding and rather think about, you know, language as like both sonic and just visual experiences, right? I'm like, okay, like if I don't know what's going on, can I at least enjoy the way words are happening here? Um, And I think some poets want us to do that, Mm -hmm. right? I think some poets are less interested in that like clear narrative legibility or that clear content. And they're saying like, you know what? Here's the work. Take it as you will. Take it in. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the best pieces of, of advice I ever got about reading poems that I didn't understand was to read it, like read it out loud, read it silently, and then just like ask, how do I feel right now? You know, like how does reading that make me feel? And like for that to kind of be the poem experience, you know, like I remember reading Justin Philip Reed's The Malevolent Volume. It wasn't ever really clear, like if you if you said like, what was that poem about? Like, I wouldn't necessarily always be able to exactly articulate it, but at the end of each one, I had a profound feeling, you know, like I had like an emotional experience and like, you know, I don't know if I can exactly say like my emotional experience was like the one that the poet intended or like is like, you know, mirrored their emotional experience, but even just like feeling kind of like, changed in my heart rate and my blood pressure and like my breathing by a poem like that feels satisfying even if I don't exactly understand how I got there it can be really sneaky sometimes the ways poems Mm. get into you and they can take like long roads to get to you you know well, our guest today on the podcast is Saray Jarrell Johnson, um, a poet that we are such huge fans of and whose brain and writing we admire so, so deeply. Among many other things, he talked about what sort of things he finds satisfying as a writer of his poems. He talked a lot about sound and kind of like the mouthfeel of poems from his background um, doing oration. He talked about structure and formalism and how that combines with uh, something he called speculative confession, which we think is just like the most amazing combination of words ever. Um, But, you know, the expansiveness of thinking about craft and poetics here definitely helped my own craft and poetics and understanding of poems expand as well. No matter who you are, if you haven't read Saray Jarrell Johnson's work, you need to run out and buy Slingshot because there's something incredible there waiting for you, no matter where you're coming from. Saray Jarrell Johnson is a writer from Piscataway, New Jersey. Slingshot from Night Boat Books in 2019, his first collection of poetry, won the Lambda Literary Award in Gay Poetry. He is a Ruth Lee and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Poetry Fellow with the Poetry Foundation and the Social Media and Community Engagement Specialist at Sins and Valid. He is a spiritual herbalist apprentice at Sacred Vibes Apothecary in Brooklyn, New York. Find him online at sarayjarelljohnson.com or temperancequeertarot.com. Saray truly is one of the most exciting minds thinking in poetry. I'm so excited for y'all to get to hear this interview um, and to hear his work. And here's Saray, who's going to start us off with a poem. This poem is called Last Besh Niche uh, with found language from Brideshead Revisited. When I was 17, ecstasy disguised itself as vice, juicy, offensive, and easy. Pretty things want to get rough. An impertinent affair of the heart and more than the heart when I was 17. Tipsy versions viced their pimples when I was 17 and transformed pretty things to indecisive corn silk. When I was 17, I said, I give up, finding no keener pleasure 
than a deer or a natural boy's in ecstasy. My partner, the obscure other, was very naughty and kind, insatiable as our affairs. So I gave up and let myself be offensive, a juicy piece of impertinence when I was 17. Wearing colored tails obscured by poppies, hearts, and deers, no thing could give me keener pleasure. Come back, I'll be keenly offensive, whispered when I was 17 and transformed the popping juice of pleasure with meaty boys, a juicy little piece of vice when I was 17 and with others, pleasure, hullabaloo, ecstasy, the heart's juicy poppy, its rough pimples, its kindness, blasphemous. I gave up more than my heart. Wow, that's so beautiful. <laughs> Oh, the, heart, the heart's Gosh. juicy pimples. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that poem and what led you to going to Brideshead Revisited? I think about reincarnation a lot. You know what I mean? You know, as a gay, transmasculine person, like cis gay spaces are at once like hypersexualizing and very exclusionary. So I find and have found, you know, in transition that um, a lot of cultural things that are outside of Black gay culture, which I was raised in, uh, were not uh, known to me. And so went about educating myself. And so Brides Have Revisited was like my first contact with like what white gay people believe their early culture to be. Even though it was written by a woman, um, it is, you know, it was, it was made as early as the 70s. Um, and also, mo- like, you know, movies like that, um, that are separate from the culture that I was raised within. Um, but still, just cultural iterations of, like, how feminine men are allowed to be, what, like, is uh, considered culturally appropriate, like, how that changes the way a culture sounds. And um, those kinds of like dandies and fops, like they were just like, like language was one of the ways that they articulated their gender expression is one of the ways that they articulated their femininity. And so, you know, repurposing those words through my own mouth, just, it felt organic, it felt authentic and accurate. Mm-hmm. I'm a lost black queer in the room right now. Uh, can you give me just a little bit? Cause I don't know at all what Brides had revisited. Yeah. And then also like maybe for some listeners who don't. Um, who aren't familiar, including myself. I am a listener who is <laughs> not familiar. Yeah. Sure. Brideshead Revisited is extremely long. It's a book about this like English dude who's at Oxford and like, you know, like it's like, I would be gay because it's college. And then like the guy who he's like <laughs> gay for is like extremely rich, like very, 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 very rich. So it really just looks at their culture, um, the subculture in which they live and like, in what ways they are permitted to be gay or whatever they are, in what ways they are permitted to be in love and what ways they are not permitted to be in love, um, which is a major theme of my work. You know, living as a Black femme lesbian, although I didn't have girlfriends like that. So, um, you know, that's just another linguistic construction. You know, like there are just certain groups of people who are not allowed to date, you know, like they weren't to the point where you would be bullied, harassed, you would lose friends um, for, you know, just dating certain other expressions of people. and so. It's definitely something that I saw in that book and just trying to look up the author. Evelyn Woe, but maybe that is, a, like, maybe that's a man's name. And I've just thought that Evelyn Woe was a woman this whole time. Huh. That's a boss-ass man's name. A man named... It's a man. Oh. A ma- really? 
<laughs> I'm sad I didn't look it up before this literal moment, but yes. Uh, yeah, because like, like when uh, when I said it, I was like, all of those like names that we associate with women are like like Vivian and things like that were men's names at some point. Vivian or, you know. too? Yeah, to yeah, yeah, for sure. Like there are plenty, um, but appara- apparently Evelyn as well. Evelyn. Wow. It's such an auntie name, but yeah, like I'm sure that he was auntie. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What I re- loved really reading through Slingshot is that there are times I really had to distrust my uh, confessional sort of compass, uh, making my way through it because it does feel like you so easily maybe like slip into another person's narrative um, as a writer in order to tell that story fully embodied in some way. And so I'm just wondering, I guess, what happens on that border between confessional and narrative when you decide to maybe turn something that is personal experience for you into something that starts to feel um, fictionalized or built on top of? Um, and how do you enter other people's stories for yourself as a writer? Because I think that was a wonderful slipperiness while reading through the collection. Yeah, I think that the gag about Slingshot is that only about 3% of it is not my story. Um, and the only reason that I had to leave confession is because like what happened was so implausible. Like almost all that stuff happened to me, you know? Like, yeah, that's that's me. That's all me. The only part about it is that I'm, and I'm very thankful, is that the raids didn't take me. But I also didn't know how to write around that because it was implausible that the raids would not have taken me. I couldn't write that into being believable, even though it was the truth. That makes me want to ask about kind of like what poetry might give you vis-a-vis an unbelievable true story. You know, like what does poetry offer to you as you're like trying to um, hold or grapple or tell that story? You know, I finished Slingshot and it got slated for publication while I was at Columbia, while I was entering my thesis year. I'm thankful that I went to Columbia. It was the best place for me to have gone. Um, I was supported financially um, in a way that I probably wouldn't have been other places. And I didn't have to be around a lot of white people constantly, um, which is difficult for MFA programs that generally, but um, there are a lot of black people at Columbia is is the fact of it. Um, A lot of them is is PKs. So I feel like therein lies the um, preacher's kids for those who are not black. Um, But uh, I would get asked a lot, like, why is this poetry? I knew that I couldn't bring machine of mahogany and bronze to workshop. I knew I couldn't workshop it. Wait, why did you, why did you know that you couldn't workshop it? You know, my workshop was incredibly hostile. And, um, you know, I had one of my classmates, one of my black classmates wrote a poem about me that was like, Eunuchs cut off part of their bodies to serve gods that aren't God is like ah! one of the- <laughs> was one of the lines. No PK, no. That wasn't one of the PKs. That oh whoa whoa okay because actually PKs actually do be a little bit fucked up in a way that I enjoy. Okay, yes. so. <laughs> they do be a fun time, but um, no, it wasn't. And so like that was the kind of stuff, and I think that it was also like both including me in womanhood. And then if I like did anything that seemed like I was okay with femininity, which I am, I am fem. Um, you know, then it was like, no, don't be here. It's like, well, damn, can you like, so I just felt like I couldn't live, you know, in that space. And so um, I ran into a lot, like this problem of like poetic satisfaction that I've known since I was a kid. Cause you know, I was a um, orator. So I grew up doing poetry through the mouth. Um, but not in like a slam way, like where it's like, this is a cool thing I do with a team, but like an individual graded thing for like individual prizes and like church money, along with extemporaneous public speaking. So that's, you know, what how I learned about poetry. And then I did poetry out loud. And so the idea of like satisfaction in the mouth was like very important to me. And like, can I, I pause real quick and just ask sort of what kind of poetry were you doing in that 
in that orator space? Like, who were y'all reading? Um, yeah, I did it from the time I was five until the time I was 18. Wow. And, um, you know, it was recitation. So we had to memorize everything. And the first poem I really remember like doing, you know, and it was like a, a small canon, right? Because it's all black. It was, you know, um, a free and then very, like after it wasn't free, a very low cost program where, you know, um, black lawyers and stuff would come back and teach black kids the art of public speaking. And so, you know, the poems was real black. So I remember my first real recitation was the creation by James Weldon Johnson. Wow. There was one poem uh, called The Last Black Man on Earth. And I don't think that, like, I, I've never seen it since then. And, and what was it? The poem Snow, where it's like, I came out of my black house and did these black things. And yep. then, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that, a lot of, uh, a lot of Nikki Rosa. Oh, we love a Nikki Rosa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of, a lot of, a, a lot of Nikki Giovanni, like, about 50% of the poems recited were Nikki Giovanni. So. <laughs> um, I don't think I even really considered how much contemporary poetry was being written until I was in college. My uh, grandma would take these books out from the library and it would be like five American poets and it would be like four white people in Langston Hughes. Then when I was in Poetry Out Loud, the you know work that people was doing was always like, Ooh, I don't know if you, I don't know. It was before the conversation about like cultural appropriation and stuff had really started when I was in high school. I ended up doing uh, one piece by Gertrude Stein, shirt by Robert Pinsky. I'm a big Pinsky fan. I'm from New Jersey, naturally. And uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. You know, like very traditional, very always rhyming, very formal. Um, and I think, you know, that was what poetry was to me. So like the idea of like poetic satisfaction um, and like structure and surprise, they loomed large in my mind. And I felt like the story... Like, I, again, most of it is true, you know, like most of it, it's like, it's not me, like it's, it's, to, it's persona, but like it is persona that's meant to alchemize my own experiences and put things in order in a way that like still allowed me some plausible deniability, just because it, it, you're, I'm never sure how like safe it is to be out as a, you know, former sex worker, or, like to the extent which, which that is a coherent category in a way that's like not a glamorous way, you know, like, it's not like, like, it's not like particularly like upscale, like just like an everyday kind of person. Um, and so like, I had to figure out like, how will I create satisfaction without blackballing myself? You know, like, how will I get this book published and also tell the truth? And it was just, look, I did the best I could. Mm. The book is incredible. I'm so happy to see it get the kinds of recognition that it did and i wish that it had gotten more um this is less of a question and more of a compliment but um, thank you i appreciate it <laughs> but that's just like the inventiveness of language I-, I just felt sort of like rooted in my seat and able to go with you into the like not so much surreal maybe but just like transcendent inventiveness of that is in in that language and in the kind of wild places that you take it um so just like congratulations and thank you for that book um thank you i really i i really do appreciate it i did not know if people was gonna bump it and i'm just thankful that people did read it that it was published um you know if, if only that had happened i would have counted it as a success like a runaway success um because i only got an mfa because i self-published a chapbook and i said i ain't never i'm never doing this again i'm never <laughs> self-publishing any fucking thing again and then while i was at columbia i had a kid's book that was published um through the britannica ya imprint i didn't even know that yes <laughs> it's called how greek immigrants made america home and it paid my rent for three months thank you hallelujah <laughs> um yeah so you know it was it was one of those times where it was like i know something about greeks we're just gonna tap type it on out 
Um, and it was a six week process. And now I have to, you know, I have to call them up every couple of months and tell them to stop saying that I'm Greek. There's money in that. Giannis just won that NBA championship. You might want to just be a little, have a Greek grandma for a little bit. I'm going to think get about some it. Of this good, get some of this Black Greek money. There's, there's investment going on in Black Europeans right now. You know, people real excited about that Italian brother, you know. Make yes. I, I mean, the honest to God truth is that my grandmother was really into the Greek festival growing up, like really into it. And she would have her little Greek dress. She would buy her little Greek things because that, that was the thing to do where I'm from. You know, like there was like a, the Edison Greek festival. We would go and, you know. Look at Greek people like, you know, white people be looking at us. So (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And enjoy ourselves. I love that. I love that so much. So, right, I want to jump back a little bit to what you were saying about um, moving sort of in your own story as if it's like the vehicle of persona. That's so interesting to me, right? And I think there is a sort of imagistic and I would say, yes, lyrical play and like wilderness that you're like sort of piling on top of what we can feel as personal experience that lists it to the grander, I think, of like the surreal, right? Um, And I'm wondering for yourself, how did you come to that place where you're sort of moving within your own story, like you're moving in somebody else's, maybe taking certain choices and all that? Was that through drafting? Was that a sort of a longer thing of your poetic process? When did you, I guess, maybe let go of the need to be confessional and what that implies, right? And they would say, I'm going to tell this, but I'm going to move with sort of a greater and maybe more imaginative flexibility. Yeah. Um, You know, I completed a machine of mahogany and bronze the first iteration as part of Culture Strikes, Climate Change, and Environmental Justice Fellowship. You know, I had to write it very quickly. You know, the first draft for A Machine of Mahogany and Bronze was done within six weeks. Um, And so, you know, it was the lyric poems that were hard, um, especially because I do think of myself as a formalist. When I think of myself speaking confessionally, I don't know why I'm speaking. You know, like, and I don't think, I don't feel that way when I read a lot of stuff, you know, like when I read one art, I'm not like, why is Elizabeth, like, why are we speaking? Like, it's not like that. Like, I think that there are certain people who do confession so well that I'm like, this must be my life, you know, but like, it's just not where I personally shine. I really am committed to the experiment of thinking about how I can make other people literally feel what I feel. And I can only do that through form. Like I, you know, even reading like someone like Robert Pinsky, who I, you know, I really, I very much enjoy, or I really love Moton's poetry too. You know, like, even though that's closer to my own experience, sometimes I just find myself being like, I don't know where I, I'm at in this. I am interested in this, but I feel very voyeuristic. And so I think that one thing form, and it's like, especially broken form too, like where you're like wanting it. And then you have to like, just accept that it's abandoned. Like it's propulsive enough of a, like a form to like hold the questions that I have. I think that that for me, isn't quite confession so much as it is like a real ponderance. Like, it's just like, it really is just about thinking about like, what do we owe each other? Like, what do we owe the people who have harmed us? Like what happens when like the person who's like responsible for your care is also somebody who allows abuse to occur on your body? What happens when like actually you have more privilege than that person now in your life? Like what what do you do? Like what do we do for each other? What we do with each other? And I think that that's part of the reason why like the primary character of a machine of mahogany and bronze does the most things like I do, but is the least like I am. But has like my concerns are what's poured poured through Sean. Those questions like I. It's I try to work through them in confession, you know, or like semi-confession, like in, uh, you know, my stepfather malfucks the devil or, you know, like what, you know, what have you. But it always slips me like in, you know, like in Harold malfucks the devil. 
I tried. I was there like trying to write about like the Pine Barrens and like sitting there like and the Pine Barrens look like this doing research and all that kind of stuff. And it was just like, but what if <laughs> <laughs> what if there was an orgy with the devil? What about that in the Pine Barrens? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I feel like that's as close to confession as I can get. Um, I feel like it's speculative confession. You know, like that's the most I can offer. What I'm hearing is that confessionalism is a useful like seed, but it is not the plant, right? Or maybe it's like a dirt that you like plant your idea in. And it's like, ooh, confession, thank you. Now I'm gonna actually work with this other thing. <laughs> so we're we're circling around form. And I just wanted to ask you um about how form functions both in slingshot and in the work that you're creating right now. I loved hearing that you were doing these um orations of like these like very black but also very traditional poems you know <laughs> um, you know James Weldon Johnson it don't get more traditional than that um there's evidence on the page too that form is present right and thought about but there does seem to be something sneakily traditional and I guess I was wondering about your process um where do you feel maybe those like calls of traditional form speaking to you loudest where do you feel um the urgency or the need to break that um how does form happen for you across drafts and in your process yeah I love talking about form because I teach form and um you know like I feel like that's the only thing that I'm really like yes that's I will come and speak to you about form one thing I really like about form is that white people think they own form. Like they feel like they own all of the old forms. Like they just really believe it to be true. <laughs> and I think it's so cute, you know, like I think it's very <laughs> cute that they feel that way. And I understand that when I break form in ways that they find uncomfortable, they get very upset, you know, like, I mean, like, you know, my students sometimes get upset. Like I taught a class where I taught, um, gosh, with Quar. I, I, I taught, I taught um, Milk and Penny. And students left my class. They dropped out the class. And I was like, this is as formal as it gets. Like, you know what form Lupi Kaur is going to be writing in every single time she gets at you. There is no confusion. You don't have to be like, what will she be doing? You know, she's going to write the same way every single time. I'm not saying that, like, this is what, what I reach for when I'm feeling away. It's not it. But, like, as far as, like, memorable lines that make people want to tattoo it on her arm, she has a monopoly. And I'm not saying that, like, people have to write like her. Um, but I feel like people should know why people like her. What is this form? You know, like, how, why has it emerged? And so I think for myself, form is the way that I write about disability um, because form is the body. It's someone who has systemic lupus, erythematosis, someone who's autistic. It's like, I could tell you what systemic lupus is like, but it's not going to be impactful because the beliefs that people have about systemic lupus specifically in the Black community are not conducive for what I have to say. Because prior to this generation, it was a death sentence, you know, like it was just something that was going to kill you. Like it's something that people associate very widely with death. It's still, I mean, it still will kill you. I mean, it's not like it won't kill you. It's difficult for me to write head on thinking about the way that the poem has a body and that like the ways that is, you know, those bo that body does break um, says something about the content. Um, and, you know, for me, that is like something that I use as a meta narrative for disability. Um, and also just because when I write in free verse, I'm just like, I don't know when this line ends. Like, I, I feel like it's just like, it's confusing to my brain. So I, don't, I really don't do it a lot. Um, you know, Slingshot is part of a, of a trilogy. So um, in the books that I'm finishing now, I am, you know, thinking about how I can impose my own forms, like in what ways is like, does meter take the place of like uh, form? Yeah. God, Suri, that is so fascinating to think about form as the body from like a sort of disability poetics framework. If, if the form of the poem is its body and if you're looking at it from a disability poetics framework, then what is kind of like a disability 
justice-informed way of looking at the poem look like? You know, like, does that change the way that you might, like, care for a poem in a workshop or care for a poem in revision or um, et cetera? When I go to write about disability, it just never, it never really works out. I think I can only write about it in proximity, um, like Rochelle's PTSD um, and her flashbacks and, like, in True Dreaming, you know, like, or, you know, in Magenta, where, you know, the other ocean crossed out boys with limps and lists, Prince punctuates all my trysts, you know, like that's, um, then it goes in the cop part. Like I never dated a cop, um, but a, a Marine. That's a cop. That's a cop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's true. Um, it's also, you know, the second largest employer of trans people in the country. It is, you know, pretty difficult to like throw a stone and like, especially for trans masculine people and like find somebody who hasn't been in the military, um, who also hasn't been to college. Like it's either military prisons like that's who um snaps people up and so um those are the people that are in my community and thinking about like the extent to which the violence that the military was like inflicting on people abroad was also the violence that was being inflicted in the military on this person um and the way that impacted their body I think that it's easier for me to write around it which is why I write essays because it's not that I'm like don't want to write about disability or like it should be like some sure shadowy topic like it's supposed to like what I do in terms of speaking and writing. But um, there's something about like poetry that where that like literalness doesn't work for me. Plenty of people do it really well. I think Deaf Republic does it really well. And I also just think that like, there's something about lupus specifically where I'm like, I just can't figure myself like uh, my way to write into it. Even if it's not maybe showing up in like a subject way inside of the poems or like there's these flashes. I love the invitation that you're giving folks to a deeper engagement with your work and saying like, hey, if you're looking for the disability lens, look at the body of the poem, look at the line, you know, look above the word and think about this structure. That is a, I don't know if we often get to do that as writers, is like offer like, I don't know. I just do feel like that is like an invitation to be like, read again, read harder and like look for this because it's informing your work. And so it's just about us to like, I think to go ahead and engage with it and find the the doors that you've left for us um, to enter that critique or that thought in the work. Well, and it also feels like kind of like a response against like a pressure to disclose, you know, to say like, meet this, this poem as it is. And like, it doesn't have to disclose like its specific disabilities to you and like meet it and read like, you know, yeah. For sure. I mean, I don't mind the pressure to disclose. Like, I feel like, you know, lupus is like, I recognize that it makes people think like dead man walking, you know what I mean? But like, you know, I don't think that anyone else has to disclose. Like, I'm not going to pressure nobody else to disclose. But like, if somebody's like, we're going to talk about disability, like, I'm going to tell you I have lupus. Like, it's like not like, I'm. first of all, I'm lucky to be alive. Second of all, doctors definitely tried to kill me. Like, they straight up tried to kill me. I was undiagnosed for six years. I had to diagnose myself. And like, I also do lupus stuff. Like I do disability stuff. So like, as far as mine, like, I feel like, you know, like it's fine. I'll tell you it's elsewhere. Um, especially during COVID, you know, like the first thing that happened, COVID started to me when they took my hydroxychloroquine away and gave it to the, you know, able people. Like they just took my medicine away. They just took it away. You know, I had to fundraise really quickly to just like buy some out of pocket, which is like a privilege that other people would not have. So like, you know, as far as disclosure, like it's actually really important for me right now to tell people I have lupus. And like, also like there's a genocide against autistic children like there just is you know like every couple of days another autistic child is murdered and um people not just justify it but like also like valorize it like it's like people consider it a net good and so um you know it's actually really important for me to disclose um and I don't think that that has to be true for everyone I don't think that there's some ethical imperative to like disclose um but it's important for me for sure thank you for for saying that and for pushing 
kind of back against the, that thing that I threw out. Yeah. Um, you talked earlier about your investment in a poem being satisfying. Can you say a little more about what you mean by that? Like what you find satisfying and what you're kind of looking for in that realm as a writer and also maybe as a reader? Yeah. For sure. You know, I think that structure adds a lot of satisfaction for me. And that's, again, like that's autism is a meta narrative. Like, I'm just like, I want to know when I'm going to eat dinner. I'm going to know when I'm going to eat lunch. If I, there's a major detour, I'm going to be upset. Like, I don't think I'm going to recover from that. So I think uh, satisfaction for me happens in the mouth. Like if a poem doesn't sound, part of the reason it takes me so long to write a book is that if it doesn't sound good in the mouth, like if I can't tell you the poem, it's not ready. It's just not baked for me. One thing that brings me satisfaction is a close, like a close that feels final or, you know, unfinal if it's supposed to feel unfinal, but like um, that is reflective of like the emotional experience that was doled out earlier. Like I really feel strongly about that. Um, I think that there are some words I, I don't like to hear, you know, like I, or like some ways words hit, hit near each other that I don't like to hear. It really is a personal, like a personal best kind of thing. Cause like, there's plenty of poems that I, you know, enjoy that maybe I can't read out loud. Although I read every poem I read out loud. Um, you know, I, I'm someone who likes a lot of rhyme. I feel like rhyme, it's pleasurable. Um, when one is reading a poem, one deserves to feel pleasure, at least at some point, even if like the subject matter is painful. And like, yeah, like rhyme is pleasurable. Form, it's pleasurable. It's, it's like the pleasure is built in. I think that that's something I learned, you know, growing up in the church. Like I grew up very churched. I am very churched. You know, like the Bible as a form, like growing up with the Psalms as a form, it's just like, you know what you are getting. You know what you're getting growing up with Song of Solomon as a form. You know, you're going to get some cedar, you're going to get some hyssop, you're going to get, you know, the Lord shaking the mountains. Like he does a lot of shaking stuff. He do be shaking. He do be shaking stuff. You <laughs> he know, he be shaking some. Yeah. He do. Absolutely. <laughs> but again, that's form. You know, I grew up going both to AME Church and I grew up in the um, Unity Fellowship Church, which is a Black gay liberation church. And so I grew up thinking that things were hymns that are not hymns, like um, Kenny Bobian's version of You Are My, Patty LaBelle's and Sylvester's You Are My Friend. Like, I thought that that was a church song from almost my whole life. And, you know, thinking about how things hit you in the ear, like a sermon and like what brings satisfaction to a sermon, the way that sermons bring themselves to a close, right? Uh, just one more minute. Hold on a minute. Those things are the forms that have governed my life, right? They are the forms that structured my years. And I think that there is a churchiness that I think exists, it has to exist in my poems to be satisfied, for me to be satisfied. How do you balance that like search for satisfaction with the kind of like mess and breakage that you seem also invested in when it comes to working with form? Sometimes I'm really concerned with mess and breakage. Sometimes I'm really concerned with perfection, you know, mm. like sometimes like I, I can only allow a little mess. I think it's interesting, particularly like in the ways, like, first of all, I'm thankful that my, my book was reviewed at all. Like, please, you know, like, you know, uh, call me what you want, but uh, call, you know, say my name, please. Um, you know, like that's where I'm at with it. But I do think that there's more comments on the mess than I think is mess. There's mess. I agree. <laughs> I feel like there are definitely reviews where like people are just like, is this person a man or a woman? Here are a bunch of bios about what it says, right? And also, like, well, look at them, you know, like, is this person a, a what? And, uh, you know, like, is, is this character him? Or, you know, what, like, what uh, pronouns, you know, like, is, uh, there are plenty of reviews like that, too. So, like, I think that some of the mess that people are talking about is a me. And that is all right with me. But I don't know that that's always in the work. I don't, like, I, yeah, like, sure, there is mess in the work. I'm not saying that there is no mess in the work. 
But um, the urge to satisfaction defines even the presence of mess. Like in Belial and Morningstar, that's like a poem that I like truly worked very hard on. And honestly, it was like three earlier poems where I was trying to like talk about this one experience with this one daddy that I had in Red Hook Houses that stuck with me for like a decade where I was like, I need, I physically need to write this poem as a spell to break a spell. Um, and I need to say it everywhere I can around the country until that is broken. You know, I know that like, because it is not a perfect crown of sonnets that people are like, yeah, there's mess in this, but it is an incantatory spell. It, it is, it's not messy. Like it, it is not messy. It is untamed. It is kinky. It is sexual. And I think that that's something that sometimes gets read as mess. It is unfamiliar, but I don't think that that, I mean, sure. Like there are places, I mean, there's still um, a desire for this like control, you know, like there's like an understanding of what's being broken. It is not being broken accidentally. Like I, and I think that that's in some ways, I feel like there are times where like I see a poem, enjoy it completely that is like called like, you know, a, a, like a faux something, like a faux sistina or a faux sonnet. And it's like, it's pretty far from like, you know, like from what we would traditionally call a sonnet, but that's not considered messy. Most of my, like my kind of sonnet, the only thing that we, like it does not have in there, it, ha- it has the meter. It doesn't have rhyme. Like that is the one thing it like intentionally does not rhyme. Um, and part of the reason why it does not rhyme is because I recognize that those things of the experiences within it are unfamiliar. So why would it rhyme? It's not going to rhyme with your experience. So um, that's the reason that I forewent rhyme. But, um, you know, for the most part, I do try to write on the form. And if the form is broken, it's broken for a reason. Like the, the, the breaking of the form is part of the content. I love thinking about one breaking as part of the content. I, w- I wonder what, how, what your play with time does to mess with their heads. Not to make it mess, because mess implies clutter. Um, your book is, there's not, a, there's not a piece of fat on there, you know, like... It's meticulous in that way. But what I would maybe that they call mess, I my mind did go to wild. And I think that's about like the wild possibility of the next line or the next word, right? This was not a book I could predict. But that is not because it's messy. That's because it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that you've like gotten that. I feel like, and I feel like maybe that was maybe parts that I, I I'll be honest, that maybe I confuse in my own readings as like, oh, maybe this isn't, Saray that I'm reading about right now in this poem. Like, I think some of the ones that speak particularly about sex work and stuff like that, you know, in my mind, I think I invented a mother figure that then divorces me from like the trans masculine person that I feel like I'm reading. And so that's where I think I'm like, okay, I'm just going to trust that the poem is good. I don't necessarily need it to be about one person, right? This could be about a plethora of people. This could be the same person going through these things at different moments. And I don't give a fuck because I'm still getting something, right? Um, And I wonder what that is about like sort of the readers or maybe in particular, we could say like the white or maybe the cis readers need for a particular kind of patriarchal um, coherence and order that they demand out of our lived experience that they're also demanding out of the work. Yeah, the work is not mess. It's actually you think that lives of this narrative and this construction are mess, right? Or I'm not legible to you in this space, right? We're on the same language, um, but you don't have yet the experience, the depth, the empathy, the experience to actually read what the fuck is going on here. For sure. Because this is all I do. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I make magic. I read people's cards. I write poetry and it's all the same thing, right? Like that's all, that's literally all I'm qualified to do in the world. 
it's absolutely chaotic. Absolutely. And so am I, you know, like when, you know, Stephanie Burt was like, uh, you know, wrote about it, that it was fears at times chaotic. I was like, yes, that is, that's, that's true. I think that the key for me to understanding a machine of mahogany and bronze is my theory that in the like play and movie Rent, that Collins and Maureen are the same person. I truly believe that they're the same character written two times. Um, and there's a lot of doubling that goes on. And I think that that's the same with Rochelle and the unnamed protagonist in A Machine of Mahogany and Bronze, is that while they are like separated out, like they are of one single experience, and that is my experience. And this is the most important part, I think, that like is just not going to be legible to anyone who is like not transmasculine gay person who was, was very early in transition at that moment. My whole life, I had dated studs and aggressives. When I transitioned or began to transition, that was no longer possible. And there was nowhere to hold that grief. And so that is where these characters turn toward each other because they have a long history and attempt to make a reconciliation of what the present is. Because it wasn't that we weren't allowed to have sex, it's that we weren't allowed to love each other any longer. It's difficult because like in, you know, in the community, there's still a taboo against, you know, stead for said there's, and I was never as that I was always been, and, you know, was raised in political femme identity, you know, like that's just, you know, a very big part of my identity. But when I was like, actually like, I am, you know, a gay proximate of a man in a non-binary way, like it was like the people who I had grown up with, even those who had transitioned like into men, we still could not be together any longer. Mm. And so it left me with a different kind of rootlessness that is not it's not like the whole of the trans experience, right? Because there are plenty of trans people who are like, all right, well, I was, you know, you know, with men like this before I'm with men like this now or like whatever it is. That was not what was the case for me. And because I had not seen that reflected, can't, I can't see that reflected in my like cis gay peers, you know? And I think that, you know, while there are like a lot of, you know, like trans men poets that I, and, you know, and trans masculine poets who I just, whose work I just adore and, and a couple of them are even gay, um, you know, or, you know, like are queer, you know? But like, I think that there's, of like a particularity of my experience as a like someone who grew up as a working class black person in stud femme communities, you know, I knew that transition would mean that the people who had always loved me would still desire me, but would not be allowed to do so openly. And that is the relationship that I depicted or attempted to depict between the protagonists of A Machine of Mahogany and Bronze and Asar. And in order to make their relationship more legible, it was a longstanding relationship that was facilitated by the mother's abuse. And also because both of these characters are masculine, there was nowhere to hold the things that I need to talk about about the sex industry. And so I put those into Rochelle. It's fictive. And I am a serial poet. Like I do write, you know, serial works, but like that is, you know, what I was working through with those characters. And so I think that it's easier to understand an unfamiliar person through the people that love them especially when we talk about trans people, like I think that sometimes trans people are made into like loveless little islands with no friends, no lovers and no parents and no family and no community. You know, I, you know, write against that, whether consciously or subconsciously, because like there are people around me who make me who I am. I, I really only make sense in proximity to others, you know, making that legible to, a, a, you know, a buying audience that can be very white for poetry and a reviewing audience that's even whiter the story worked with those anchors or those perimeters. And I mean, I, I mean, I think the best I've ever, you know, part of the reason I put the machine of mahogany and bronze is the way it is. Cause it's a warning, you know, like we are going to experience floods that are going to kill the people that we claim to care about least. 
um, people are experiencing raids every day. You know, shortly, you know, while I was writing this book, I was, um, you know, a part of the sex worker giving circle from Third Wave Fund, where I got to, you know, got to ask rich people for a lot of money to give to sex worker led organizations. But I also, you know, also got to act with a team of sex workers and former sex workers giving away, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to sex working organizations um, after FOSTA SESTA came down. And, you know, like, the way the landscape looked when FOSTA SESTA came down, you know, like people's bank accounts was getting frozen and they was in legal parts of the profession. You know, like people were losing the ability to work inside, you know, like people were working outside for the first time in their lives. That's so dangerous. It was also just like a really wonderful experience, like where I met like some of my favorite performers of all time um, and, you know, got to work with them to give away a lot of money, which is like, what do you love more than that? Like just giving away a lot of money, like asking rich people for like tens of thousands of dollars and giving it away. And then eating good food and like looking cute. It was great. And like, you know, like I was definitely like the boy of the circle, but like it was important for me to write about that because that was what I was doing at the time I was writing Slingshot was like, you know, re-intro. Well, I never left, but like um, in some ways I was wrapping up my like work in like sex worker, you know, the sex worker rights movement and really thinking about places to go with that because it's just not an experience that's very often represented in poetry by people who have experiences in the black part of the sex industry the low rent part of the sex industry started young, you know, as you know, started young experience homeless, uh, like homelessness and houselessness. It's just not an experience that I saw reflected. And it was one, it was all I had to write about because that's the experience, like those little experiences I had to draw from. You know, I think all of this is making me think that to kind of bring it back to this conversation about mess earlier, what the white cis heteropatriarchal I calls, or maybe is inclined to call mess is really just like, multitudes, multitudes of experience, multitudes of connection and like a kind of expansiveness. It seems very important to continuously name the difference between mess and multitude. Um, Yeah. Is there anything else that we should touch on before we go over? God, I really wanted to talk to you about like herbalism and clairvoyance. I wanted to ask about all the witchy shit, but I guess we don't. Uh, we talked about poems. We talked <laughs> about fucking poems, like a poetry podcast. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, <laughs> I wondered, uh, maybe Saray, um, before we go to games, if you would talk about, um, you mentioned that Slingshot is part of a trilogy. Um, and so I would just love to hear, what are you satisfied about Slingshot that like you don't have to worry about in the next one? Like, where can where are you going to go? <laughs> um. There are a couple of things that I like would go back and like, ooh, I want to, you know, I think maybe that's true of many people like who have books out where it's like, I just wish I could do this and then put it back on the shelf. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think that one thing that is going to be true in the next book, which is currently unnamed, but the long poem uh, as of this time is called The Casualties. And so where Slingshot is like a question about, you know, like I was, you know, a ch- for a time for about a year, um, a chapter lead for Black Lives Matter in like, you know, in Philadelphia. I was processing my grief about like my experience with Black Lives Matter. And so like it ended up being like the organizing eco, you know, feminists kind of question. That was my primary question. Um, with this one, it's actually about gentrification. It's like, it's a time in which, you know, after this major flood, you know, like there's less places for people to live. And so people are pushed out of the place that they are living into a new place where they are then gentrifying, which is what's already happening, right? <laughs> like that is that's absolutely what's happening is where it's like certain parts of this country are going to become uninhabitable quickly. And people are going to have to find new places to live. It's going to change the way that we can even conceive upon gentrification because people with the privilege to move will be all gentrified. Um, And so 
thinking about what happens um, when there is not a lot of space to go around. And so that is the defining form of uh, the casualties is like a very small brick of poem. So I am excited about that. You know, my, my town, hometown was really changed by Sandy. Um, it opened the door for a level of gentrification that I never thought possible in my sleepy little township. And so, you know, like Sandy was very much on my mind and that kind of flooding when I wrote Slingshot. But it's more speculative from here on out. You know, like it really is. This could happen. You know, like something that speculative NIST can do right now is it's a, a kind of prophecy. And so it like helps people get ready for stuff that is going to happen, right? Like I'm really leaning into like the speculative nature of these poems um, and really enjoying that because it doesn't end in gloom, right? Like it's, none of it's meant to be gloom. Like it's all about like holding ourselves accountable and also about what will be the beauties of this terror now? Because I know like one thing, you know, about living a multiply marginalized life or even like things that people think of as like wholly abject, like, with lupus, like I'm immune to malaria. Like, I think that that's beautiful and hilarious because I've been on an anti-malarial for so many years, like not getting malaria. And, you know, like if we do all flood out, like this will be a lot of malaria. I'm not going to get it. I think that that's really interesting. Like that, that's a beauty and a terror. You know, I'm leaning into that like speculative experience um, after Slingshot um, because there is a realism to Slingshot that I feel like was limiting for me. And I look forward to not offering much of that, even though it's also a great Black migration book, the second book in this series. Um, it is about the great Black migration and the poem that I'll read is about the great Black migration. Oh, can't wait. I'm already like, it's like pre-ordered in my mind. <laughs> Thank you. you. Know I mean? <laughs> Please keep, keep, my, keep my writing in your thoughts. <laughs> it's hard. I know y'all know, but it's hard, right? It's, it's hard. Really hard. It's really hard. It is fucking hard. It's hard. It's hard. I'm writing this next one and I, I'm not, let me tell you, not excited. <laughs> <laughs> Like, also very excited, but I'm like, oh, one day I'm going to have to, like, really, like, be up in this. And I'm not looking forward to, like, really being up in this. I'm still in the writing stage. I ain't trying to edit shit. <laughs> the editing, I feel like, can be physically painful. Like, I feel like when I'm, like, editing it, I'm just like, really, you want more from me? Another edit? I just, <laughs> I guess. Right. Yeah. Like, I know I should I should change it. I know I should change it, but... I but I already wrote it but once. I like, it. <laughs> and it's going to be different, and then I'll have to look at the new version and then think about, is that good? Oh, God. Yeah. And then I'm going to change this down here, but it's going to make me hate this thing I really like up here, and it's going to be like... <laughs> and with form, there's no just like, oh, I'm going to change a word. <laughs> nope. So, yeah, it's... It's like Jenga. Yes. Editing, editing a form. It is poem. Jenga. Yeah. It is Jenga. By which I mean I'm bad at it and it's, I fall down all the time. <laughs> well, I'm bad at Jenga. Yeah. Let's play some games. Yeah, games. Yay. So, Ray, it is time to play some of our wonderfully stupid games that we make genius people play. Are you ready to <laughs> have a go at it today? I am. I love games. Yay. All right. So this first one is called Fast Punch, where we're going to give you 10 categories. Um, and you are going to tell us either the best of those 10 categories or the worst of those 10 categories in rapid fire. So, Ray, do you feel like being a pessimist or an optimist today? An optimist. An Yay. optimist. Good. Cute. All right. I'll give a. I'll give the first one. Uh, so, Ray, I would like to know the best form to break. Hmm. It's the sonnet, because the sonnet's a room, so you're punching a hole in the fourth wall. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, best summer food. Corn on the cob. Oh yeah. Uh best protest chant. I love being black. Hmm. Best uh tarot card. 
Well, the name of my tarot uh, service is Temperance for a Tarot, so I'm going to go with Temperance. Best medicinal herb? Well, the one I'm walking with for my apprenticeship is reishi, but lemon balm. Oh, I can't pick one. Um, either reishi, <laughs> lemon balm, or nettles, and I hope that you'll indulge me because I'm a Pisces. <laughs> <laughs> um, best place to write? Not at my house. Anywhere that's not my house. <laughs> best book you've read in the last five years? Oh God! What about the summer? Best, best. Oh, best summer. summer. I did you read anything? Best. (laughs) (laughs) I read it. I read something, but what is it? Um, you know, um, wow. I don't be ranking books like that, but you know what? The Lucille Clifton Collective was real good. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I reread um, Slouching Toward Bethlehem, and you know, Didion. I feel like she be saying stuff I, I i don't even bother me that i feel like you know maybe we wouldn't get along in person or whatever but like she really is just like i'm a slice and dice and she really do she do she do the thing you know like it's always giving what it said it was supposed to be gay yeah mm-hmm. didian is that girl best game Uno. good answer good Ooh. answer mm-hmm. all right um this is my last one best high school class lunch is also an option <laughs> GSA, I guess. <laughs> GSA, okay. School activities, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Best city in the U.S. Newark. Newark, yes. Shout out to Newark. Yeah, Not shout out to Newark. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I think you've just won the games, right? Yay. You did. Yes. <laughs> I've had some good times in Newark, actually. I like need to go back. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's always a place that like I don't like try to be intentionally, but whenever I'm there, I'm like, this is great. <laughs> yeah, Baltimore and Detroit are also wonderful. Like I really love all those cities for different reasons, even though like I feel like I'm a guest in like the other two places. But Newark made me who I am in some places. I'm not from Newark, but like Newark was the nearest major, like you know, nearest city to me growing up. Yeah, Detroit. There's a very, very uh, fond place in my heart for Detroit, for sure. Good gay bars. Very good gay bars. The Woo. Oh, my God. If you are hearing this in Detroit, go to the Woo tonight for me. Oh, my God. I love that place. Wow. Baltimore has a really good black gay bar called Ziasco's that I miss so deeply. Every time I come to Baltimore, I'm always trying to get my, my shake my ass in somebody's Ziasco's. I always have a good time. Ziasco's. Ziasco's. Who's fucking uncle? Right. <laughs> spot. I love it after hours spot. <laughs> yes. It's lordy. All right, all right. Should we play this next game? Sorry. Yes, now we just talk about New it. Jersey clubs. Right. <laughs> um, yes. Um, our next game is a classic on the show called This Versus That. It's where we will pit two people, objects, concepts, etc. Um, and you have to tell us which would win in a physical brawl. Um, not just who's better, but who would win if they were actually throwing hands. Literal hands. Sometimes we have conceptual ones, but this one is like pretty, um, pretty straightforward. Who would win in a fight? Poetry slam kids or poetry out loud kids? Poetry slam kids. Yeah. Not me though. I can fight. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, poetry slam kids. Because they're actually a team. Poetry out loud, we're all working for ourselves. Mm. That's true. And y'all be staying in y'all little box. We do. The first time I judged poetry out loud, I was like, the fuck they got these kids in this box, bro. <laughs> I lived for it though. 
<laughs> it's true. And it was the black ones who did the best. I will say that. And the black ones used to be like messing with the box. Being like, I can't leave, but I'm going to like jiggle my shoulders. Wait, wait. What uh, do you mean the box? There's, there's like, like a can't... literal box on the floor that you can't like step outside of. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And like those kinds of like scored orations that aren't like, because again, like slam is like a uniquely black form, you know, but like that stuff is like, that's how white people want you to do poems. Just like, I am a talking head. <laughs> Without arms. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. One last game, our most speculative of all the games. Um, this is called This Versus Something Else, where we're going to ask you if you would like to stay in this shithole of reality um, or go to this alternate reality that we just invented. So, Saray, would you like to live here where you exist? Or would you like to live in a world where your pen, pencil, whatever you're writing on will stop working when the line or the poem is done? I think I'll stay where I am. I like the fight. Ooh, I like the fight. What do you mean? <laughs> Just like, you know, the, the like wrestling with the end of a line. Like, I really like an order on the page. Like, no matter what I'm writing, I like my lines to be about the same length. And so, you know, like it'll take a little, we'll take a penny, leave a penny with that. <laughs> I like that. Mm. The mystery of it. Mm. So you like the, like the kind of like wrangling into a form rather than being like told, okay, you're not allowed to write anymore. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. And the wrangling towards certainty is more important than like some like outside figure telling you, okay, like now. You're done. <laughs> yeah, there's a tension between me and the work. You know, like where it's like, well, this is what I want. It's like, this is what the poem will allow. So I think that's fun. Mm. Boxing with the Mm. box. Mm. (laughs) Boxing with the box. Yeah. But you know, boxing with the box. Kind of. You do got to box the box. Yeah. Box the box. Well, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of sexy. I feel like that, that wrestling. Yeah. I was going to say that, but I was like, well, I'm on a podcast. I don't want want anyone uncomfortable. But yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) <laughs> it is. It's true. If the poem stopped when it knew it was supposed to stop, it'd be like you ever have like an orgasm sneak up on you, yeah. <laughs> like you weren't like you weren't quite prepared to have it, and it's not like it was great. You're like, oh, I came, but like I kind of wish like you know I would have known more, or like I would like or a quicker build up. You know, it's like a wasted nut. Yeah, a wasted nut is the poem that finishes itself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it makes like I think that that's actually a really good analogy because it almost nullifies the presence of the writer or the like mm. nut maker, you know, like mm. where it's like, well, you know, if you knew where he was going to stop, then why am I even here? <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait, the writer as the nut maker. The nut maker. <laughs> From the same people who brought you the nutcracker, we yeah, bring you right, the right. nut maker. <laughs> <laughs> yes! I'm going to start calling my top that. Hello, my nut maker. (laughs) No. Juan, you got a new name. Okay. (laughs) Oh, Juan. Oh, Oh, well, right. thank you for that gift of a nickname for my boo. And also thank you for (laughs) for the gift of your gift and for everything you said on this podcast today. It has been truly a pleasure. Where can folks find you when you want to be found? Um, And would you send us off with a poem? Yeah, um, you can find me at sarayjarellejohnson.com. You can find me online on any of the social medias at sarayjarell. And this poem is called The Fruit. When the tooth broke clean, I saw the pleated tan seed, grape skin stiff as watermelon rind. There'd been no forecast announcing disaster. My face wrung out to a bleeding grimace. 
I poked the wet absence that gapped where my tooth once held strong, the offending grape barely torn, a slight funking my father's father's kitchen, its betrayal bending its fruited arbor over the side of my family tree I knew least. I hated my grandfather's savannah that summer, the place I wanted least to be, white-gloved cousins' coercive prayers, church quiet and white skin, the sopping heat that swole me, announcing my body's later betrayals, yet Six months and I'd be back again, every trip spawning its own disaster. The cousins teach me scuffanine. I dictionary it, scuppernong, the great pronounced otherwise. By 15, annoyance was supplanted by absence, my difference too obvious for kinship. My father permanently absent, proclaiming no relation. I mean, bro, consult an honest mirror at least. I walked the curb to my Mima's sister's yard instead. Wasp-dotted grapes slung under my great-great-grandmother's cedar arbor, brown-skinned, small and sour as my mother. Surely every family holds some disaster. But how tight can you squeeze it before it pops? Another rotten betrayal eaten a seed. Mother, if we are to speak again, we must address each betrayal, make a list, assign them each a number. The abandonment dressed as absence when you hot-glued your name to his and initiated as a priestess of disaster. For all I could say of my mother, she was around for a couple years. At least I can attest to her physical presence in her jewelry box mirror dotting her skin with vitamin E to reverse the scars, a diva wishing for cheeks smooth as a grape, a hopeless project. Her face spangled as if she killed a wasp in the grape spewing fumes that invite the furious hive. A marker of the hormonal betrayal that tore a tunnel through her one side to the other and smoothed her skin. How twisted the mind of God. I can be certain that she cursed the absence. I would be her last and only child, the one she regarded as if I were the least of all existence. How twisted the mind of God, a tailored hell, a disaster. A family tree is a history of blood beneath the fingernails, a disastrous reenactment of old menace, old flight, taking only a hand of grapes draped over the yard's bushes, swiped right out of the wasp's mouth, lest you travel on foot with no quarter until the Schuylkill, betrayed by a star-spangled covenant reversed in the second act, a joke, an absence of justice promised, an indecipherably patriotic warranty undone by skin, one onto the other upon the people of Ham. Cursed are those who tear the skin, and glad are they to be so cursed, to suck the split bone and burn it to an absence while lapping partitioned vanilla on the fourth Certain there has been no betrayal. Everybody, that was Saray, motherfucking Jarrell, motherfucking Johnson. Yeah, it, this this was one of the ones where I, I like learned a lot about the work through the conversation, which is like such a fucking gift. I love when a poet talks about a book that I already really loved mm-hmm. in a way that makes me want to go back and yeah, read it. Yeah, absolutely. You know? <laughs> absolutely, totally, yeah. <laughs> I also, I thought that our conversation about narrative and confession was so interesting. Yeah, also like some of the ways that our assumptions were kind of challenged in the conversation. Speaking of narrative and confession, mm-hmm. you know, this is one of our last episodes. This is what it, this is, we're winding down. Um, yeah. And <laughs> Like looking back, what would you like the story of verses to be told in the annals of history? And also, what is the confession 
that you would make about versus and how it actually <laughs> went down. <laughs> um, I hope that the narrative, you know, at least of, of my side of the, the being the host of versus for these first five years is going to be like Denez showed up and had a wonderful, goofy, sometimes embarrassing time talking to some really great poets, <laughs> you know, and like people got stuff from it. I think my confessional is I discovered how hard of a time I have with questions. You know, we both went through that, right? We like actually like had you know, we brought in people to be like, hey, how do we ask better questions? <laughs> <laughs> or like, just be better interviewers, yeah. you know. Um, but even now, you know, even recently, I've been thinking about like how hard a time I have asking poets questions of their work when I feel like they've done their work, right? And then, you know, I'm trying to do, remember that like interviewing is like a dinner guest thing, right? Where I'm like, I don't necessarily need to know. I'm trying to get you to like talk to this audience that is like invisible on the other side right now. Um, Hi, invisible audience. Thanks for listening. <laughs> you're not invisible. You know, you're just listening to this two months from now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so feeling a nervousness in that. But sometimes the show, half of it is just poets coming on here so we can tell them to their faces how good they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and maybe I'm better at asking the questions in the classroom space, but like to the poets, I've noticed like I have a really hard time asking people about their work that doesn't feel like explaining their work. And so that's the confession. Denez for five years never knew how to ask a question. <laughs> 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 or I feel like this is a thing that you've been doing lately is that you've been counteracting that nervousness by asking like four questions. <laughs> it is. It's like, please answer everything. So I'm just going to get all my questions out in this first one. And hopefully. <laughs> take Which is also a bad interviewer move, right? Like one question at a time. You know, bitch. Oh, I'm still learning. learning. We've been learning. We're still yeah. learning. Um, still learning. <laughs> well, for me, I would say, I mean, yeah, similarly, I would say that I would like for the narrative to be that um, Franny was really engaging and like fun. I think that the confession would be specifically something I learned about myself is that I am not that intimidated by cis men. <laughs> like, like, even, like, like the most, the most, the most, like we've had some of the most like brilliant cis straight male poets on this show. And as nervous I as I was to talk about them, I was able to be like, what did you mean by that? <laughs> you know, whereas like any other person, it feels like being at a bar or something where like there's like a like a cis man who's in the way. And I will just be like, excuse me, I'm going to get past <laughs> you. I need to get past you, you know. But when there's like a cute femme or like a cute like trans boy or something like that. Anyone else? I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Hi, I'm I'm sorry. I oh, I'm a worm. You're so great. Like I support you. I don't know. I love you, and I hope that you like me. Um, you know what? Just step on me, <laughs> please step on me. <laughs> you know. Um, so that's something I've le I've learned about myself. <laughs> yeah. Wow, this this proves what I think is the stereotype that like bisexual and queer women like you know like like men are so easy to fucking figure out, but like like fucking shambles around anybody else yeah, right it's like, that's exactly, like, is that a stereotype or is that just like my entire life i see many bi bisexual and queer and pan identified women online always saying like how come when like i talk to a guy it's so fucking easy but the second i come to a girl it's like i want to be her friend and there's no hint of like flirting or sexuality it's like uh, yeah <laughs> i just turn into like a little like a little keychain in a pocket just being like oh yeah. hi <laughs> 
wow, what an analogy. I turned into a little keychain in a pocket. I don't know. That's just like. And you gave it a voice. I don't know why. Um, Yeah. Or like just like a little, I just become like a little throw pillow in the shape of a dog, you know? Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Please use me for love. You go from, like, yeah. You go from a pit bull to a little nervous chihuahua. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Or, or I go from a pit bull, like the idea of a pit bull to like the kind of pit bull that actually just rolls over and shows you their belly, which is most pitbulls. Honestly, oh, Franny just wants to show all the non cis men her belly. Aww. I do. Look at my belly. Look at it. <laughs> well, we know Franny's porn site that she's starting after Versus is over. What? Look, um, at belly. look at my belly. Look at my belly. Look at my It's just you being pet by different people. <laughs> I love that. I feel like I would pay for your belly pictures. I'm not paying 10 and I'm not paying 11, but I will pay 9.99. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I appreciate that and that helps me build up my confidence. It's <laughs> a confidence. No, you're for me. <laughs> uh, let's thank yeah. some people and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> um I want to thank pitbulls just overall. Pitbulls and pit mixes and the people who have them. I'm going to thank Pitbull, um, <laughs> the Cuban Miami rapper. Pitbull, I liked you more when you weren't so <laughs> world's music. Um, some of those things are good. Um, but I was listening to your albums with Little John on them the other day. And I, I will always appreciate you for the song Culo. Um, you were the first rapper I ever heard talk about eating ass. And um, I appreciate you. I've always thought you were cute. Um, if you're secretly gay, you know where to find me. <laughs> Wait, does he know where you to find you? I mean, you know, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, <laughs> wherever he may listen to podcasts. <laughs> you can make sure he likes, rates, and subscribes to this pussy. <laughs> uh, um, by the way, we also want to thank our producer, Daniel Kisslinger, for turning whatever this is that we give him into a podcast. Thank you, Idalvi Noriega and Itza Blanca of the Poetry Foundation. Thank you to Post Loudness. Thank you to all of you for continuing to listen to us. As Dines said, whether you are or are not Pitbull, you know where to find us on apple Podcasts, <laughs> on spotify on soundcloud um pitbull holler at me on the npr one app make sure that you follow us on twitter at vs the podcast um it has been such a pleasure to bring y'all this show we're so excited in a couple of episodes to bring you the new hosts of versus oh my god oh my god, oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. who are they who are they who are they uh, you really don't know. uh thank y'all for listening once again run out and buy slingshot by Sir Ray Jarrell johnson yeah. um and until the next time we hope you take care of yourselves and do some good in the world um peace y'all yeah go pet a pit bull go pet pit bull sorry pit bull the people start petting you okay <laughs> bye, bye. <laughs>